And after this, and there's a context to that, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, the many. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Simply put, Peter is one of the few that recognizes his unconditional need for, a, uh, for relief, for relief from the burden of his life, which is overwhelmingly sin. And so Peter, while juvenile in his understanding at this point, very juvenile in his understanding, um, <laughs> characterizes it as, yeah, I'm coming to you. There's no other place to go, which crystallizes the re- a reality that God is the only one. His words are the only one only place where we find uh, eternal relief. And so I would encourage you now as hearers to hear the words of our Lord explained in a sermon for sure, but hear them and find relief. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. This past week, you may or may not have known, but uh, Jan and I took a, a trip to California separately. Um, so she drove out and flew back. I flew out and drove back. And uh, it was to pick up our daughter's dogs. So anyways, so this past week, I rather than spending time in Malachi, we're going to go back to Philippians. And Philippians 4, 1 through 9 is the text that we're going to be looking at. Um, it's easy to look at Philippians 4 and uh, 1 through 9 and break it up into small little pieces um, <clears throat> and not realize that they're all uh, related. That, that 4, 1 through 9 is a pericope, a section of scripture that Paul is addressing one issue, and that's conflict in the body of Jesus Christ. Now, I've, when I first uh, addressed this, however many months ago, is this the sermon I go back to, or this text I go back to when I... Um, after, you know, meetings and things like that. Um, someone, actually a couple of you, came and said, do we have conflict in our church? Do we need to hear this? What, you know, what's going on? And it's certainly not, not that. I mean, well, sure, there's conflict in any church, any marriage and the like. But brothers and sisters, I will say this, that um, one of the gravest responsibilities that is before us as married individuals, as families, as brothers and sisters in Christ is learning how to how to get along with sinners. You cannot live with sinners without conflict. And so this is a very wonderful passage for any church body, for any marriage, for any family, for any working situation, regardless, as we gaze upon this passage, um, which we're looking at, the section which I've titled The Disciplines of um, uh, Peace. And uh, so um, I'm going to read 1 through 9. This is the, the text we have come back to and and I'll read it again in total this morning this is God's word and thus it's the words of almighty God our great king and as that is the case it's appropriate for us to stand out of reverence and respect for the reading of his word please stand with me hear now the words of our king therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see my joy and crown so stand firm in the Lord my beloved, I urge Iodia and I urge Asyntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. 
Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours each and every week to gather here and worship you corporately, but also, Lord, in the process, fellowshipping with you and your word. God, we know this is a meal to our souls. We pray you bless this meal that we might all richly imbibe, richly partake, and be nourished, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, we pray, feed us richly. We know that's a work that only you can do. Take the foolishness of preaching and use it, O Lord, to exalt you and mold and shape us to be a people for your glory. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I know of a married couple who, after their second child, tried to have a third. And for whatever reason, they couldn't have a third child. They worked and they labored and they, they after you know, a couple years, they began doing the, the treatments. And if you know anyone who have ever struggled with um, uh, um, not being able to have children, uh, you know some of the struggle that no doubt this couple went through. The, the questions, the, the failed hopes, the, the batteries of, of tests, the money, and that uh, pervading feeling that there's something wrong with you. And then when you hear about announcements of other people having children, and there's that sense of, 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 of bitterness that can arise in your heart that says, Lord, what, what, what are we doing wrong? Have we offended you? What, why? Well, this went on for 10 years. And while this woman was not barren, she had had two children. Nevertheless, she, she had many of the struggles that I just described and more. And so after 10 years and a lot of tests and a lot of money, a lot of turmoil, a lot of, a lot of tears, um, the attention, uh, well, the man finally said, okay, I'll go and, and I'll get tested. And so the, he went and got tested. And that's when the truth came out. Following his second child... He got a vasectomy. He didn't want any more kids. So this man sat there for 10 years allowing his wife to go through all that trial, all that difficulty, all that heartache, crying herself to bed at night, and he was the one. He let her believe that it wasn't, you know, who knows what it was. Brothers and sisters, that, that, that's enough to hurt a marriage, to damage a marriage for a long time. And yet... To the glory of God, this woman did not respond with bitterness. And the reason why is because there is another way that God gives us in the kingdom of God to respond when you are 
um, are confronted with, with um, the sins of other people and the conflicts and the attacks and the ridicules of other people. And that way is found in Philippians 4. As we've seen, Philippians 4, 2 through 3 revolves around Yodi and Syntyche. And as I'll reference, I'm sure, in a, a, a little bit, it was not a doctrinal issue because if it were, Paul would have been all over it. It was not a sin issue because if it were, Paul would have been all over it. We know the way Paul wrote. We know what he did. Now this, brothers and sisters, we have uh, concluded is, is not an issue of um, moral failure. It's not a, an issue of, of heterodoxy. This is an issue of two people who can't get along. And so Paul writes in 2 through 3 and exhorts the church to help these women. And we think it may end there, but it doesn't. Then verses 4 through 9, Paul then turns his focus broadly to the entire body and gives them the disciplines that lead to peace. The whole context of this book or, or, or of this uh, section is peace. Peace between Yodi and Syntyche. And notice verse 9, it ends with the peace of God shall be with you. We're, this whole section is talking about getting along with your married spouse, getting along with your siblings, getting along with your kids and your parents, getting along with the body of Jesus Christ, getting along with fellow brothers and sisters. Now, last time that we looked at this in July, we looked at the first discipline of peace, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. So we're on the, the second discipline of peace this morning, and that is found in verse 5, forbearance. Forbearance. Notice with me the call, brothers and sisters, verse 5a. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The phrase forbearing spirit is only one word in the Greek. It's a special word. The word is epa um, I'm sorry, epa um, epa case. And it is it is a word that does not that that defies a one word a translation. It's bigger than that. It has three components to it. The first one is, it, 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 it uh, presumes a relationship filled with conflict. So forbearance is not you and I struggling with regards to forbear as a student or to forbear as a farmer. This is a relational term. To forbear, first and foremost, presupposes a relationship. Secondly, it involves standing in the right. To, to forbear is in a conflict of a relationship to do what is right before God. No matter what happens, you do what's right. And then thirdly, it involves this enduring of weaknesses, of the weaknesses of another in love. It's bearing up with their weaknesses. case. That's the idea behind this word. And thus, it is variously translated. Obviously, my text says forbearing. If you're using ESV, you'll have um, reasonableness. Um, if you've got the, the King James, it's moderation. If you've got the New King James, it translates it gentleness. And the NIV, likewise. The word also is used in lexicons to be translated as generosity, mildness, big-heartedness, big graciousness. Aristotle described this character quality um, with these words. It's one who pardons human failure. And that's a wonderful way of understanding this word. It's one who pardons human failure. And thus, brothers and sisters, a case thus speaks of a gracious humility which enables a person to endure injustice, disgrace, and mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness, 
or vengeance. That's the idea behind forbearance. Do you get it? Do you taste it? If you bite into it, it's not just, um, you know, enduring um, a race, enduring life. It is in the context where you have the right to be perhaps upset. You feel offended. To forbear is to do what is right before God. To um, bear long, to suffer long with someone else's weaknesses, someone else's um, uh, tendencies towards being rude, uh, perhaps. Um, and it is thus, thus being someone who, in the context of conflict, bears it unto the glory of God. That's the idea behind forbear. And, and would you notice, Paul says, not just he wants you to forbear, notice verse 5 again, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. In other words, Brothers and sisters, if people were to think about you in the context of conflict, what comes to their mind? Think of, the, think of, of brothers and sisters, friends, husbands, spouse, children, parents. When you think of conflict and them, what's the one or two words that come out in your mind? You know, defensive, um, blame shift, anger. We get in a conflict and that person gets angry quick. Or is it forbearance? Paul says, brothers and sisters, in the body of Jesus Christ, when you're gathering at your homes, wherever you are, you want to be known, and when people think of you in conflict, you want to be known as someone who is, who is thought of as forbearing. Yodi and Syntyche, that's what you're after. Body of Jesus Christ, that's what you're after. You want to be one who's known as, as, as someone who forbears in the context of conflict. Brothers and sisters, it's how Jesus Christ is known. Think of three questions. Let me set it up uh, with you. Jesus Christ, if there's anyone you can think of, the perfect example of forbearance is Jesus Christ, is it not? I, we begin with think of who is Christ. Let's start there to think of how inglorious is his uh, forbearing. Who is Christ? Christ is God. Now that is easy to say, but I want you to to contemplate. It's easy to say without thinking about what uh, you're saying. When you say Jesus is God, I want you to think with me Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember that glorious uh, picture of God? I referenced it even last week when we looked at, at Malachi. Isaiah 6, you've got the seraphim. The seraphim, when you think of angels, you may think that all angels are the same, and they're not. There are different types of angels, just like there are different types of animals. The seraphim, the seraphim, those are angels specifically created to minister in the presence of a holy God. So they have a unique creation. They have six wings. And of those six, only two deal with service. The other four deal with worship. They cover their eyes. They cover their, their feet. They stand in the presence of Almighty God, and they say what? Holy, holy, holy. Now, again, they're morally upright, which tells us they're not amazed at God's moral uprightness, his sinlessness. What they're amazed by is his otherness. They're there in the presence of this being who's not the creation, who's the creator, who is completely different from them. So they're awestruck. And, and thus, right now, brothers and sisters, those seraphim are saying it, and they've been saying it since you've been born and before. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Wow. Incredible. Now, brothers and sisters, what makes it even more incredible 
is when you read John chapter 12, verse 39b, and you can read it up above. Quoting Isaiah 6.10, John wrote, For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. So John is quoting Isaiah 6, verse 10, which I forgot to read. But Isaiah 6, 10 is what he's uh, quoting. And then he writes, these things Isaiah said because he saw Christ's glory. Brothers and sisters, when you think of Jesus Christ, you need to think of Isaiah 6 or Revelation 1. When you think of Jesus Christ, don't think of the meek and mild and lowly child. Think of God Almighty, who is so awesome to gaze upon him is to die. And thus you fall down as a dead man. And you are dumbstruck. You are, you are awestruck. You, you, you don't know what to say because he's so unlike man. Unlike creation. He's awesome. And yet, he is so much like man. For he is man. Okay, that is Jesus. Now, when Christ came to this earth, that is God. That is who came to this earth. When he came in this, uh, to this earth, veiled glory, no doubt. How did man receive him? Well, Matthew 21 the parable Christ prophesied of the treatment he as the Son of God would soon receive. Notice, there was a landowner, representing God the Father, who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built the tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce, speaking of the prophets. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed the other, and stoned a third. And he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. Think of the former and the latter uh, prophets. And they did the same thing uh, to them. A lot more prophets came latter. But afterwards he said, he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him. And they seized and seized his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. It's a prophecy, exactly what John 1.11 wrote, that, that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So get this, you have God Almighty, Isaiah 6, God Almighty, Revelation 1, this glorious being who condescended, took the form of a bondservant, became man, walked among sinful men. What did sinful men do? Did they worship him? No, they killed him. And how did this God-man respond? Notice 1 Peter 2.21. Peter wrote, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And this is the example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Brothers and sisters, that is the essence of epiakes. Okay, it is a gracious humility which enables a person to endure injustice, disgrace, mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness, or vengeance, regardless of the perceived worth or merit of the offender. That is the call here. This is what you want people to know you by. It's what, men, it's what you want your wife, when they think of conflict with you, to think of. 
Now, that may, not be, that may not be what they think of now, but may that be in God's grace what you become. Wives, this is what you want your husbands to think of when they think of you in the context of conflict. Children, parents, parents, children, brothers and sisters in the body of Jesus Christ. This is what you want people to think of when they think of you. Christ gave it as an example. This is what he wants us uh, to be. And thus, brothers and sisters, as our example, if Christ could endure the, the, the torture of wicked men without re, uh, reviling, we who deserve death on account of our sin have no basis to respond with anger when someone sins against us. If Christ is our example, walked the earth, deserving the worship of all and yet receiving none, we who deserve the worship of none should walk on this earth expecting to receive none of the praises of men. And if Christ is our example, brothers and sisters, we should, be, uh, um, we should think of Christ who, who um, served ones who sought his death. If he did that, we too should serve ones who have sought our harm. It's sadly, brothers and sisters, Yodin Sintiki, they didn't want to go that way. For the Yodin Sintiki, and again, we know it was not doctrinal error. It wasn't doctrinal. It wasn't moral compromise, because if it was, Paul would have been all, all over it. We know the rest of his writings. We know Philippians. He would have addressed it. He he doesn't address it. He says, help these guys get along. So it it has nothing to do with those things. What was it then? It was an attitude of right or riot. It's that sense that either I'm right or I riot. There's no sense of grace. There's no sense of forbearance. There's only the sense of I am right and that's it. I got a question for you guys. Would you rather be right or would you rather ask for forgiveness? Think of your marriage. Would you rather be right? Think of a conflict. Would you rather be right in that conflict or would you rather ask for forgiveness? Every one of us here, my guest would say, well, I want to be the one who's right. I don't want to have to ask for uh, forgiveness. Why? Why? Because, brothers and sisters, as, as shared during dedication, we have a righteousness that we want to glad, uh, grab onto. We don't want to be wrong. We always want to be right. And therefore, our lives are lived with right or riot. It's either I'm right or I, have a, I throw a massive fit. Forbearance is the exact opposite of that. Forbearance begins with, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner and I'm so willing to be wrong. It's not right or riot. It's, it's, it's let me humble myself while being reviled. You're right. I'm a sinner. I understand that. We'll get back to that. Brothers and sisters, that's the idea behind it. Yet brothers and sisters, sadly for, for Yodi and Sintiki, that's not what they wanted. There's a pun here, verse 5 and 6. I want, you, I, want to, I want to point it out to you. Notice he says, verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. And then in verse 6, in the, the middle, notice what he says there. Um, uh, uh, be anxious, offering, but let your requests be made known to God. There's a pun there. Yodi and Sintiki were letting their problems with one another be known to all. And Paul says, you're supposed to let those problems be known to God. What you want everyone to see is forbearance. So there's a twist here. Yodin Sintiki, instead of having all your problems known to the church, why don't you let your problems be known to God and you forbear? You humble yourselves, you sacrifice, and give deference to one another. That's the idea behind forbearance. 
case. It's this beautiful picture. And as Paul exhorted them and us, stop letting your criticisms with regard to one another be known to all men. Rather, let your forbearance when it comes to one another be that which you are most known for. So in the context of conflict, that's what we're after. Now, that's a tall order. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I'm talking about me as a sinner. That's a tall order. Because, quite frankly, I don't want to be wrong in my relationship with my wife. I want to be right as a parent, as a brother in the Lord, as a sibling. Name it. I want to be right. So Paul turns to this incredible word of encouragement, verse 5b. Would you notice? Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This phrase serves as a bridge phrase between 5 and 6. It's the beginning of 6. It's the end of 5. The Lord is near. Now, what is it? The, the Lord is near can either refer to the imminency of Christ's return. The Lord is soon going to come back. So Revela- or, uh, Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone. The day is at hand. This secondly could be in reference to the imminency of our death. Right? Romans 13, 11, this do knowing the time that is already uh, uh, the time for you to awaken uh, from the sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. So we're closer to salvation, to our death, than we were yesterday. So this could either refer to the imminency of Christ's return or the imminency of our death or neither. There's a third option. And in the context, this is most likely the way this should be understood. This is not talking about the eminency of Christ's return. It's talking about the eminency of Christ's presence in your life. Remember Matthew 18, verse 20? He's talking about discipline. The brother sins, go and reprove him in private, right? And how does that end? I Many you take this verse out of the context and you just go, hey, we're two or three together. God's there in their, in their midst. And that's true. It's true if you're by yourself, he's there in your midst. The point of that verse at the end of Matthew 18, verse 20, is to encourage people who have to confront another sinner. Brother, understand, when you gather two or three people, you get a witness and you go, God's going with you. You're not alone. There's a special presence of God in that moment. That's the idea here. Brothers and sisters, let your forbearing spirit be that which is known to all men. Why? Because Jesus Christ walks with you. Do you understand that? You've got, you've got the God that we just saw described in Isaiah 6. That God has condescended and is with you this very moment in your life. That's incredible. You can't see it. I... I, I Maybe I'll use it now. My child shared with me a, 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 a geographical movie that she just recently saw about insects and, and what they see, the infrared. They see different in the cones in their eyes and fish and the whole bit. And, and, and if you all saw, what's the, the movie with the Indians on another planet? What is it? Avatar. If you saw Avatar, you remember how they made the world look so incredible? That's the way the world looks like to insects. They see a world they don't, we don't see. Brothers and sisters, can you live by faith and live in light of a world that you don't see but is real? God is with you at every moment of your life. That God who reigns supreme walks beside you, within you, before you, behind you, protecting you. If you only knew that, you wouldn't need to worry about your righteousness and being right. Who cares if your spouse calls you, you know, you're wrong on this one? It's okay. 
Now, we're not talking about phony relationships. There's a place to talk and say, well, explain to me, you know. But brothers and sisters, we're talking about your response, your ultimate response. Is it right or riot or is it right or, or forbearance? The idea that Paul's in, it's forbearance. Why? Because Christ is with you. It was this truth that Christ used to encourage the church upon his ascension. Lo, I'm with you always, even in the end of the age. It's this truth that impressed upon David in the midst of his trial. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. It's this truth that David gave to the, to the brokenhearted of Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And it's this truth that serves the timeless words of comfort to one suffering at the hands of unfaithful believers. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's what you've got. You don't see it, just like you and I don't see other insects or the world the way the insects see it. But if we had the cones in our eyes to see what they see, you would see a world that, does, that, 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 you, that you could not even dream of. You couldn't imagine even existed. Well, brothers and sisters, faith opens your eyes to see that world spiritually. Not the physical world, but the spiritual world where you can see by faith, Christ indeed, you can accept by faith, Christ indeed walks with me. That God is with me. Incredible, brothers and sisters. And yet, brothers and sisters, when, if you've ever been in the, in the serving, ministering a role of trying to reconcile brothers or sisters who are in conflict. It's amazing to me that you can share what I've just shared with you. And invariably you have one other person say, well, what about me? What about my needs? That's, that, that, that's, that's a question, brothers and sisters, if asked after what you just heard is very revealing. It's very revealing about Yodi and Syntyche. Because if it truly is, what about me? What about my needs? If that's, if that's what's, what's chief in your mind, then brothers and sisters, the real problem in your life is not your conflict with this person. The real problem in your life is that you would rather hear the approving words of another person than the words of Jesus Christ. I wanna, when I come home, I want my wife to treat me like like a king. Yeah, and when she doesn't, riot. When I talk to my kids, I confront them as a parent because of their sin. I expect them to respond with reverence, respect, Father dear, you know, whatever it might be. Father dearest, you know. Brothers and sisters, if, if your response to that is, is to compromise relationship, compromise your integrity of forbearing before one another in, in God's grace, then that tells you that you would rather have the approving words of another than the words of Christ. You'd rather be warmed by the arms of a renegade than, than, than bereft and left only with Christ. You'd rather bask in light of the approval of Syntyche rather than the approval of, of Christ. How it behooves us, brothers and sisters, not to forsake the eternal for the temporal, but rather to seek the Lord and learn to be satisfied with him alone. So that's the encouragement. Brothers and sisters, Christ is with you. Now, how does that translate to action in your part? How does that translate for you saying, you know what? In my marriage, I will, I will choose rather to ask for forgiveness than to be right. 
And I don't mean by that I take lightly right, be, being right. Meaning I'm not going to, I'll just willingly sin. I don't mean that. But I mean when there's a conflict comes, our righteousness is pricked and we immediately start def- uh, offending. Stop defending. Let me forbear and love and listen. Actually listen to what they're saying. And if need be, um, do what's necessary to make amends. Obviously, that is need be. Okay, how do you do it? Well, you know God's present. How does that translate to your strength? That brings us then to the basis, verse 4. Verse 4. You go, wait, we're in verse 5. Yeah, guess what? 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 is linear and progressive. The first one, the first discipline of peace, rejoice in the Lord, is the basis for the second. And the first two is the basis for the third. And the first three is the basis for the fourth. You'll see as we go on in the coming, however long it takes to get through the six. Okay, notice with me. Rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit. Based upon that rejoicing, let your forbearing. Okay, what is rejoicing? Okay, rejoicing first and foremost ultimately addresses the greatest need that you have. And that is, on what basis will you stand before God? On what basis? Why are you saved? And the answer, we, you know, is because of Christ alone. Christ, period. The reason you're saved is because of Christ's work, right? Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to, to his way. We are sinners, brothers and sisters. We confess that. Why? Because the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Romans 5, 8, and then 11. God demonstrates his own love towards that, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Glorious message of the gospel. Notice where it ends, verse 11. He also, um, we also exalt in God. That's rejoicing. When I understand that God has taken my sin, ultimately that leads to rejoicing in God. I praise God that he forgave my sin. But rejoicing goes beyond that. If you recall last July, or in July we looked at this word, it goes beyond just the mere apprehension of the forgiveness we have in Christ. It it, it then transitions into delighting in the person and work of God. December 12th, I think it is. We're going to start looking at gentle and lowly as as a whole church in Sunday school. Okay, That whole book's looking about the delight of Christ. How glorious and wonderful is this being called God? Jesus Christ, this infinite God-man. So to rejoice is to, is, to, uh, is to first begin with, Jesus Christ is my salvation alone. Not my righteousness, not, not the, what I do, not what I think. It's Jesus Christ. And secondly, it's then, that then leads me to being overwhelmed with the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the kindness and the love and the mercies of God. Psalm 27.4, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Brothers and sisters, delight in the Lord. Delight, Christianity is about delighting in the person and work of God. I'm actually, that was... Another verse, Psalm 27, 4, I think is, um, one thing I've asked, for, uh, no, it's, that is Psalm 84, 10. One thing I've asked uh, from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord in worship. All the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Did you come today to behold the beauty and the glory and the, and the, the loveliness of Christ? That's the idea behind rejoicing. 
Now notice, in the context of relationships, that rejoicing is translated into two very tangible means of aid. The first is, to rejoice in the Lord is one, with regards to forbearing, it's to confess that Christ died for your sin. And secondly, it's to confess that he alone is your righteousness. Let's look at both of those in the time we've got left. Number one, if you confess that Christ died for your sin, rejoicing is confessing at least that. Christ died for my sin. Then you must see that you are confessing that you are a sinner. Listen to Romans 3, 23 through 24. You've got it up behind me. This is how moderns translate this passage, and it's a right translation. This is a New American uh, Standard. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now there's an awkward part, verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. If you read that passage, the whole uh, pericope, you're going to find the first, first five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten times, maybe more of reading 23 and 24, you're going to go, I don't understand why he goes from 23 to 24. It doesn't make sense to me. Until you realize 24 is a participial phrase, a participial phrase modifying the all of verse 23. Let me show you the translation, the way, this is the Greg Thurston translation. This is the way I think of this, of this verse, the way Paul wrote it, but <clears throat> we translate it, okay, literally not, the, again, it's hard, but this is it. For all, skip to 24, being justified is a gift by his grace through, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus have sinned. By definition, who are sinners? All being justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? What, what, this does not say that non-believers, those who are not being justified, are not sinners. Of course they are. Romans 3, 10 through 19, you can't miss that. But that being said, this is saying very, something very specific about you as a, a Christian, you and me as, as Christians. If you and I are saved... You and I, all being saved, confess their sinners. That's the point. Brothers and sisters, all of us are sinners. And in fact, if you think about it, like Paul did, and you think about it long enough, what will you eventually arrive at? What place will you get to? 1 Timothy 1.15. What is it? I am the chief of sinners family of God, I, I, I would encourage you to meditate on that. We're talking, Paul, the Apostle Paul, believed himself, and this wasn't, he, was, he was not being hyperbolic here, he's being literal. I'm the chief of sinners. How can he say that? He's an apostle of God. Because it was true in his mind. Just like if you think about it, the person you're having a hard time with, Yodia, how many sins can you say that bother you about that person? Oh, say she's really incredible. A hundred sins. I think that's ridiculously high. But say she was. A hundred sins, Paul. hundred sins against Yodi. That's just, she just drives me up the wall. How many sins have you committed against God? A hundred times a Google. Think about that, brothers and sisters. You and I's apprehension of our sin is like an iceberg. Most of it's below the water. We don't even see it. And if you meditate on that long, you will eventually come to the point where I am in my life, and I think many of you all are as well, I am the chief of sinners. I've had people come to my office and share in the context of pastoral ministry and counseling egregious sin. 
And when they leave, I can look at my heart and go, Greg, I'm guilty of that sin and more. Because if you look with lust, you're guilty of, of adultery. If, if, you, if you look with covetousness, you're guilty of stealing. Brothers and sisters, I can look at the greatest robber in the world. They robbed this bank. I'm guilty of much more crimes than that. And so are you. So if that is true, brothers and sisters, think about it. That is the place of comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Rejoicing in God begins, in the context of conflict, begins with you and I stating that God died for me, the chief of sinners. Now, why is that so important in relationships? Because, brothers and sisters, you will find that when two people don't get along and it's not doctrinal and it's not compromise, it's not uh, moral compromise, if they're not getting wrong, you know, you've got going, even if there are, if there is moral compromise. You typically ha- have this. I would never do that to another person. I've heard that so many times in, in marital co- uh, co- uh, conflict. You know, th- my, my husband did, did these horrible things, and I would never do that. And my job as a counselor is to prove to that woman, you would, you do, you do it all the time against God. And yet you expect God to forgive you? And you're not willing to forgive the little speck in your brother's eye? Or the little, whatever. Right? Wow! Brothers and sisters, if you can rejoice in Christ, it gives you the security to be a sinner. So what Martin Luther said, if you, when you confess your sin, sin, or when you sin, sin boldly. He doesn't mean go commit a lot of sins. He means recognize every sin you make is huge. And you cannot do that if you don't rejoice in Christ. If Christ is not your glory, your righteousness, your joy, you will be so caught up with your own righteousness, demonstrating to the world I'm a better person than you really think that I am, you won't be able to forbear. Forbearance comes when you and I come to the end of ourselves. When you and I, with the confidence of the gospel, say, I am the chief of sinners. And every sin my wife did against me, which has made my little flesh so offended, is nothing compared to the billions of the same sins I've committed against God. And if you and I can can get to that point, guess what? It will not be very hard to be forbearing. That was Paul. Galatians 4, I beg you, brethren, become as I am, for I am also become as you. You have done me no wrong. I find that statement amazing. If you've studied the book of uh, Galatians, you know the, conf- the, the uh, context. The series of churches, the Judaizers came in and turned these churches against Paul. Paul to the point, man, you would have, you would have, you would have, you know, you, did, you were so gracious to me when I got there. How have I become your enemy? They hated Paul. Many did. They were ridiculing him, attacking him, misusing him, mistreating him verbally. Which is why the book of Galatians is written the way that it does. The first two chapters, his doctrine. They were attacking what he was teaching. Then chapters 3 and 4, his person. Or is that opposite? Um, And then he deals with application. Brothers and sisters, he had to defend his person. Because they were ripping him to shreds. But he says in there, you've done me low wrong. I think I flipped it. One through two is doctrine. Three through four is his personal defense. You've done me no wrong. How can he say that? Because he's the chief of sinners. If you're the chief of sinners, who could do anything wrong against you? Because you know, you may have sinned against me five times. I've sinned against God 
50 billion times the same sin. And he forgave me. I would, I would refer you to Matthew 18, 28 through 33, the unmerciful servant. Do you remember that parable and how that ends? I'm out of time. I was going to reference it to you. I was going to uh, read it. You know how that, how that ends? That, that, that servant who owed his master 10,000 talents and was forgiven, which is like, what, 77, I don't know how many uh, lifetimes of debt. It was massive. He, you know, he left there going, why was I in debt? It's because of those people. He owes me 100 denarii. So he goes and he chokes his neck and says, give me back what you owe me. And people saw and said, this is crazy. They tell the king. The king takes him before him and says, I have been so gracious to you. And the text reads, mercy should have been your, your, your lasting obligation. After, after, giving, after receiving so much forgiveness, mercy should have been your lasting obligation, literally. But it wasn't. Why? Because he didn't see his talent. He didn't see his 10,000 talents. That was gone, man. He wasn't thinking about that. He was only thinking of the hundred denarii that was owed him. And that's what happens with the Odean Syntyche. When you and I get in that relationship, we're not thinking about what God's forgiven us. We're thinking about that infraction they did against me. Brothers and sisters, why aren't you thinking about the sins that have been forgiven you? You're not rejoicing in Christ day in, day out. Secondly, Rejoicing in Christ in the context of conflict. If you confess that Christ is your righteousness, then you're confessing you don't need the praises, adulations, compliments, respect, or approval of man. And you see that worked out in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4. But to me, Paul said, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you. You're criticizing me. It doesn't matter to, to me or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not uh, by this acquitted. That's not the, uh, the goal. This is where Paul lived. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Let's talk about freedom. I don't care what you think about me. Your examination today may, may be great. That's the worst sermon I've ever heard. And I wish I could honestly say before God, I don't care that you'd think that. <laughs> right? Craig, you're a horrible husband. Amen. You're a horrible dad. Amen. I am a horrible dad. I failed my kids in so many ways you have no clue. I have failed my wife and failed those kids. But brothers and sisters, I stand not on your public opinion of me or private. I stand by the opinion of God. He who examines me is the Lord. And what is God's word about you? Well done, thou good and faithful servant, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to judge the servant to another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will because our master is the Lord. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? Our mind, when it comes to rejoicing in Christ's righteousness, is to recognize it's his righteousness that I live by. It's his righteousness that, is, that matters. You may say you're a horrible dad. That's true, but... Jesus is not a horrible dad, and he died on the cross for, uh, for me, and that's my record before God now. You're a horrible husband. You're right, I am. But Jesus died on the cross in my stead such that before God, I'm a good husband because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, does that make me look down on sin? I'm on, I'm on sin. I take it lightly. No. Because of Christ's death, I take sin very seriously. I quick to, uh, to uh, uh, repent, quick to confess, quick, hopefully, uh, to leave. So, brothers and sisters, we're out of uh, time. Incredible passage. The second discipline of peace is forbearance. This is what you and I want to be known for. 
But the only way we can be known for, uh, for that is by you and I taking our eyes off that goal and put it on rejoicing in Jesus Christ who's with you at all times. If you'll rejoice in Christ who is with you at all times, brothers and sisters, forbearance and much more will be a characteristic of your life. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege it is to look at a passage such as this before us and rejoice that the things that Paul says here to this church 2,000 years ago is as true today as it was then and more. More so, Lord, as we grow on our understanding of you and realize indeed it is that you are our joy, our crown of exaltation, our righteousness. Lord, I pray within this body, within our marriages, within our families, siblings, parents to kids, kids to parents, may we be known not as the defensive one or the argumentative one or the angry one or the joker. May we be known as one who forbears. And when asked why, we say, I can't imagine that's me, but if it is, it's because of you, Jesus, the righteousness that is mine in you, the delighting and rejoicing over a being who has taken joy in us. Father, we praise you that you beautify us with suffering. You exalt over your people with joy. God, may that be our glory and joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters,